Today we turn together in the Word of God to 1 John 5, verses 1 through 12. There's an outline as well if you'd like to follow along on page 5. Hear now the word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. What is faith? Say someone sits next to you on an airplane someday, six feet apart somehow. Say you have your kids talk to you after school and say, Mom and Dad, what is faith? I heard someone talking about faith on the radio or at the, on the playground. What does faith mean? For many, they say, I wish I could have faith, meaning the content of the faith doesn't matter. They just want to have an experience somehow to authenticate their life. What is faith? Well, first of all, we need to understand what faith is not. Faith is not irrational, believing in yourself, the power of positive thinking, optimism, a hunch, or sentimentality. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith is not a blind leap. Faith is not escape from the real world. Faith is not living beyond what you see or feel. Faith is not a vague trust with your fingers crossed behind your back that everything will really turn out okay, that things will just get better. Faith is not for those who are weak. And we don't have faith in faith. We don't take a leap of faith. Faith is mentioned in the New Testament almost 250 times, meaning this is one of the biggest and most important 
aspects of the teaching of Christianity. You see the word faith in 1 John 5 there, verse 4. You see it as well in verse 1 and verse 10 with the word believe. That's the same Greek word. So faith is believing, but believing what? What we want to see today is that faith is knowledge, assent, and trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In justification, faith rests and receives the righteousness of Jesus, looking outside and away from itself. In sanctification, faith by the Spirit is active, growing, and loving. The Christian life is a life of faith. It's a pilgrimage. It's a marathon. We want to look at some of these things today. First, the nature of faith. John is speaking here to those he loves. He wants to reassure them and you today, by the word, of the gospel and the medicine that we have in Christ. And so he says, there's something about our faith that is not natural to us. None of us is born with faith. Why is that? Well, going back to the beginning, with Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve spiritually and physically alive in his image, in true righteousness and holiness. But because of the fall of Adam, we are all now born spiritually dead, although physically breathing. We're born dead in our sins and trespasses. So what Jesus said to Nicodemus is true for every person. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, in John 3? Truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Remember, kids, Nicodemus thought literally he had to go back inside his mother's womb and be born physically. But that's not what Jesus means. What is the new birth and how does it happen? This is one, as Steve Lawson says, one of the most under-talked-about issues in theology today, the new birth. The new birth does not come by baptism. It doesn't come by catechism teaching. It doesn't come by professing your faith. It doesn't come by taking the Lord's Supper. All those things are good, by the way, but they don't bring the new birth. John 3 actually doesn't tell you to be born again. When Jesus says that to Nicodemus, that's an indicative, not an imperative, meaning we don't cause ourselves to be born again. The new birth is God implanting new life in the soul like a transplant. It's a sovereign work of God alone. Sinful humans have nothing to do with it. Monergistic, all of God, not synergistic, not us and God together. The Spirit of God implants in our heart life that doesn't come from this world. It comes from above. Something supernatural. So we are rescued by the Spirit of God from the domain of darkness, Satan and his kingdom, and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. The Holy Spirit who belongs to the future comes, invades your heart, and says, you are mine. And that Holy Spirit now continues to transform you inwardly to be more like Jesus. And one day, 
we will be recreated in a new glorified body and soul. The new birth is supernatural. This is humbling. Because as John 1 says, we are born not of blood, so any sort of idea that we're born because of the family we're born into, that we're born again because of that, John says, no way. We're not born of blood. We're not born of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That shoots down any sort of idea that we caused this. John 1, 13, how are we born? We're born of God. Peter says, you're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding word of God. This is humbling, loved ones. What does this have to do then with faith? How do faith and the new birth relate together? Look at 1 John 5, 1. According to this verse, regeneration precedes faith. You're saying, what? <laughs> Look at what John says in the verbs that he uses. The verb has been born. 1 John 5, 1 is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense, kids, do you know this from English class? indicates a past event with continuing consequences. We have been born again. The verb believed, you see that in verse 1, is in the present tense, a present ongoing continuing activity. So as Pastor Riddlebarger says, the effects of a past act being born of God, being regenerate, the new birth, continue in the present as we are believing. So the event of being born again precedes trusting in Christ by faith. Believing then by faith is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. What then does this have to do with our faith? Well, our faith, Ephesians 2, is a gift of God. It's a gift that God gives by his grace so that we ourselves now have what is called the three aspects of faith. What are they? Knowledge, meaning true faith means we know something about someone. Who is that? It's Jesus. Do you remember this story that the late Jim Boyce told? A man came to the elders to profess his faith. The elders asked him, well, what do you believe? He said, I believe what the church believes. They said, well, what does the church believe? The church believes what I believe. Well, what do you and the church believe? Well, we believe the same thing. There's a lot of biblical ignorance in the church that always has been. And part of growing in our faith is growing in the sanctification of our minds. The more we know of Christ, the more our faith is strengthened. Faith is knowledge. Faith is also a sense. Genuine faith says the content, the knowledge of Scripture is true. But so far, that only qualifies someone to be a demon. The demons know who Jesus is, but they lack what? Trust. The third aspect of saving faith is trust in the Lord Jesus, personal trust. That God in Christ has promised these things, God in Christ will do what he has promised. Secondly, 
the object of our faith. It's not the amount of faith that we have that saves us. It is Christ, the one our faith is put in, that saves. So faith is not based on our attitude, our feelings, or our emotions. It is Jesus who is the object of saving faith. Well, who is Jesus? The Son of God from all eternity, who came and took on human flesh, fully God and fully man. Faith in anyone or anything else than Jesus is idolatry. Our belief doesn't save us. Jesus saves us through faith. So our faith is the empty arms in justification that receives the righteousness of Jesus. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you, dear Christian, are a gift from the Father to the Son. As you come to him, that means what? Trusting in him. That means the things you formerly trusted in functionally for your salvation, you say, I don't trust in them anymore. I am not going to trust in those idols. All those things the world is saying, here we go, worship these things, those idols in our hearts. By grace, we trust in Jesus. And this is not a blind faith. It says here in 1 John, there are witnesses that God has given you to build up your assurance in Jesus. Three of them. The water, the blood, the spirit. Now, if you look at verse 6 of 1 John 5, you'll see one of the most perplexing verses in the whole of 1 John. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. What in the world is that talking about? There's been a a variety of opinions. Some say this is talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, water and blood. Others say it's talking about the water and blood that flowed out of Jesus' side when he was pierced on the cross. But if you look at what the verse is saying, it's talking about him who came by water and the blood, Jesus. So I think it's talking about his messianic mission. Water, then, would refer to the water that he was baptized with by John the Baptist when his messianic mission and his public ministry began. Blood, then, would be referring to his death on the cross when he fully accomplished our salvation. Why would this be used in this strange way, though? You might wonder, what's the point? Probably because those in Ephesus and the surrounding churches where 1 John was written had a lot of confusing and false ideas of Christ. Some of them denied his full humanity, some his full deity. Some of them said at his baptism, this man Jesus of Nazareth had this Christ kind of put on him. So he became Christ at baptism, but his divine nature, Christ, left him before the cross. Sound confusing? It is. Do you think they were confused by it? They were. I think that's partly why John is saying this. He's saying, okay, here's some witnesses. They're going to testify to the reality of the gospel, the water of baptism. Do you remember when the Spirit of God descended like a dove when Jesus was baptized? That's testifying to who he is. That same Spirit testified at the cross. That same Spirit raised him from the dead. 
Do you know that the Father raised the Son? The Spirit raised the Son? It says the Son raised himself from the dead, a Trinitarian resurrection. Testifying to you, this is God. This is not just some teacher that has come and wants to deceive you. This is God in the flesh. John saw him. He touched him. He heard him. He's giving you firsthand witness of this. But not only the water and the blood, the Spirit himself. And dear Christian, the Spirit testifies with our spirits internally, Romans 8, that this is the Word of God. Every time the Word is preached, the Spirit goes forth. Unless the Spirit accompanies the preaching of the Word, hearts remain hard, dead, disinterested, all sorts of things. It is the Spirit who gives life through the Word. With baptism the Lord's Supper, the Spirit is testifying. These are signs and seals of God's covenant of grace. The Spirit, as we take the Lord's Supper today, is assuring you, building you up in assurance in Christ. As you open the Bible this week, kids, and moms and dads and family devotions and single people, you read the Word. That's God speaking to you. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, convicting you of the truth of the Word, comforting you in Jesus. What a testimony this is. Now, I wondered whether to do this, but let's go ahead. Look at verse 7. If anyone has a King James, you want to raise your hand? Just kidding, just kidding. A King James or a New King James, though, if you have one, will be very different in verse 7. And I want to explain to you why. The King James says in verse 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost. These three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. Everything I just read is not in an ESV, an NIV, an NASB, an RSV. It's not in there. You might have a little footnote in your Bible. What is going on? It's not in there because I don't think it should be in there. Now, if you have a King James or a New King James, you have the Word of God. I'm not wanting to discredit that. If you have an English Standard Version, you have the Word of God. But there are things called textual variants that we don't want to be blind to, that we want to acknowledge there's something going on here. So the three heavenly witnesses, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, in the King James, got there most likely as it was added to the Latin Vulgate around 800 A.D. What does that mean? Well, how does that have anything to do with what the King James says today? Here's why. Jim Boyce, really helpful here. At the time of the late Renaissance Reformation, so early 1500s, classical texts were being translated and edited. Erasmus of Rotterdam, the Netherlands, produced a Greek text in which the words that I just read from the King James were missing. Some in that day said, where'd those words go? Because in that day, they were using the Latin Vulgate primarily as their Bible. Erasmus went on to translate a Greek version in the New Testament. He couldn't find words like this that were in it, but then someone produced supposedly a manuscript with them in it. It wasn't original. He never should have included it, but he did. 
As Boyce says, from Erasmus's text, Luther translated it into German. Tyndale translated it into English. Erasmus's Greek text became the basis of a text by Stephanus in 1550, which became the Textus Receptus, the received text, which is the text by which the King James is based. Most modern translations, ESV, New American Standard, don't follow the Textus Receptus, but the majority text, the Byzantine, because they want to get the oldest, most reliable, most accurate versions of the Greek to reflect the original. You can tell where I stand on this. There's debate on this. It's an in-house debate, but we need to know why this is. Ligon Duncan says, here's why this does matter. John's point is not that there's a testimony from the Father, the Word, and the Spirit to God the Son. That's what the King James text is saying. That wasn't in the original. So if it wasn't in the original, it shouldn't be in any modern translations either. And that idea could lead credibility to the idea that there's a distinction between the second person of the Trinity and Jesus the Christ. Remember this weird idea that the divine nature came on Jesus at his baptism and then left? That false teaching could potentially be something someone comes to because of this. John is saying, no, the Father bears witness to the Son through the Spirit. Third, the fruit of faith. Where did John start before my three-minute dialogue? Where did he start? Back in verse 1. What's he talking about? The new birth. What comes from the new birth? Saving faith by the Spirit and love. It has often been said, rightly so, that we are justified by faith alone, but the faith which justifies is never alone. Faith without works, what? Is dead. So what John goes on to say here in verse 2 is, you can't love God without loving people. You can't say, I am just all into myself. I love God on my own. Me and God, we're great. I want nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with other Christians, just me and God. That's impossible. If you say you love God and don't love your brother or sister, you're a liar. It's easier to love God on your own in some ways than to deal with other sinful Christians, right? (laughs) But it's not good for us. It's not mature for us, and it doesn't actually help us grow in love for God or each other. I love my wife better when I love God first. The best thing I can do for my wife is to ensure that I love and honor God above all else. Dear Christian, all our failures to love others, our spouse, our kids, our parents, our friends, our neighbors, our church family, all of them are a result of failing to love the Lord first and best. Our deeds reveal our hearts. So it's easy to talk about this stuff, but is there action? Love is a verb. There are challenges in any sort of family relationship, aren't there? You don't get to pick your family. You don't pick your father-in-law, your mother-in-law, your brother-in-law, your cousins. You don't pick your siblings. 
There are great joys in loving family. There are challenges. The same is true with church family. Some of the challenges with loving each other in a church are kind of keeping a record of what others have said about us or done or how they've irritated us. Same thing is true in a marriage. A marriage will struggle if one or both of the spouses continue to go back and bring stuff up that has already been dealt with in a biblical way. Now, if there's no forgiveness, repentance, that's different. But if we continue to kind of bring old stuff up, that's a failure to love. Here's another, another aspect of this. In any family, the key to growing in love, there's three keys, actually. You know what they are? Humility, humility, humility. Sinclair Ferguson says, biblically-based churches like ours are often at their worst when dealing with differences of opinion. Personal differences can be deadly, dividing the fellowship, sowing seeds of bitterness, diverting attention from central issues. So petty peripheral concerns suck the energy out of a church, a church that should be about building one another up as disciples in Christ, reaching out to the lost. How effectively we handle these differences says a lot about the biblical maturity of the church. Love, loved ones, says this. You disagree with a Christian. You don't walk away and say, I told you so. You always say together, the Lord told us so. Romans 14 talks about disagreeing among Christians. And what Romans 14 says is we should not quarrel over opinions. We should not pass judgment on those that we disagree with. And we should not try to convince others of our opinion. We should be convinced in our own mind, yes. But we should always keep walking in love, pursuing what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That's how John says the church grows. Through Jesus, you can love people that you don't agree with on everything. That's so important, loved ones. John goes on. The new birth by the Spirit, faith, love, now obedience. So John is talking about those things that flow out of the new birth. He says, when we love God and obey his commandments. Before we became a Christian, it was possible, not possible, not to sin, right, before we were Christian, not possible not to sin. Now that we are in Christ, the new birth of the new covenant gives us a new desire to obey the new commandment, which is the same as the old commandment, love for God and love for each other. Kevin DeYoung talks about obedience. As we trust in Christ by faith, our obedience is not meritorious. It's not perfect. It's full of weakness and failings. Yet, it is genuine, heartfelt, sincere, and pleasing to God. Do you know that, Christian? Sometimes we might think, I can't do anything pleasing to God. We might go to Isaiah 64, verse 6, 
and say, my good works are all filthy rags. Isaiah there is talking about filthy rags that are a perfunctory, hypocritical righteousness. He also talks of a righteousness, Isaiah does, that is pleasing to God. There is a way for you to live a life that is obedient to God. John says it right here. Not perfect, not earning your salvation, not meritorious, but your works are accepted by the Father because they're done in Christ, because they're done by faith, and they please God. Dear Christian, do you believe that? We don't want to walk away just defeated and say, oh, dirty rags, dirty rags. Not true. Verse 3, God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not heavy. They're not hard to bear. That's what a non-Christian will say, isn't it? Or a Pharisee. Just all these rules, they're burdens, they're making life miserable. But that's not true at all. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The Christian delights in the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Because we're in Christ, because we have the Spirit. To listen to those who don't know Christ talk about God's commandments as burdensome is like listening to a man bound in chains in a dungeon talking about how much he loves his freedom. God made you. He knows what's best for you. Kids, when mom and dad, when you were one years old, like our little guy, when a one-year-old is told, don't touch the stove, it's hot, we did that because we loved him, not because we were trying to withhold pleasure from him in touching the stove. You say, well, sin brings, brings pleasure. Well, for a season it may, but it always is dishonoring to God. It always leads to destruction and death. Obedience in Christ is not a burden. Here's a story how someone told this. This is kids before the days of school buses. There's a young boy who's carrying a younger child on his back to school. A person sees him. He says, do you carry that child every day? Yes, said the boy. That's a heavy burden for you, isn't it? He's no burden, says the boy. He's my brother. Love and law are not pitted against each other. Your heavenly father loves you. He gave you his law. Because he loves you, he knows what's best for you. Now you might say, what about when I'm feeling burdened? Like last week, anxious, overwhelmed. Part of the life of faith is to bring God the things on your heart. Pour out your heart to God. God is your refuge and your strength. That includes all of your emotions. Pour them out, negative and positive, to the Lord. And look at this promise of verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That word overcomes, it's found three times in verses 4 and 5. Do you know, kids, that if any of you have basketball shoes, you have a little swoosh on there? Nike. The word Nike is from the Greek word that means overcomes. The letters to the churches in Revelation were written to the one who overcomes. What are we to overcome? The world. What's the world, remember? The realm of error and idolatry opposed to God. That's what he's talking about here. 
How do you overcome the world? By love? By obedience? That's not what he says, is it? What does he say? By faith. Faith overcomes the world, verse 4, and has overcome the world. Also verse 4, do you see that? So there's two aspects to this. What does that mean? Faith overcomes the world, has overcome. Has overcome means you're trusting in Christ. Christ himself has overcome the world. In Christ, you are more than conquerors through God who loved you. You've trusted in him. The victory's won. That's been finished. But there's also a present aspect here. Continues to overcome. Meaning, our daily battles to overcome the world, our ongoing participation in Christ's overcoming the world, happens daily by faith. You say, I feel like a failure. I struggle with ongoing sin. Yes, we do. That's different than saying, I'm unrepentant, I'm living in this sin, and this is just who I am. Those things are different. So you say, I'm struggling today. If you are, that's a sign of the Spirit at work in you. I'm struggling to love another Christian. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> right? We're all hard to love at times because we're still sinners. I'm struggling at work. I'm struggling in this relationship. I'm struggling with unbelief. I'm struggling with this particular sin. I'm struggling with my failures. God says, don't look to yourself. Don't look to your performance. Don't look to how good of a week you think you had spiritually. Look to Christ. Look to him. You say, I'm struggling with illness. Many of you are. Many of us have been. Many of us still will be. Our physical condition doesn't say anything about how much God loves you or not. In our illness, it can be hard to cry out, God, have mercy on me. Look to Jesus by faith. Where do you place your faith? Fourth. What do you trust in? In our day-to-day -day life, we accept all kinds of things based on human testimony, don't we? If you're a baseball fan, you saw Byron Buxton go five for five against Cleveland. Dustin, I'm talking to you. Dustin loves baseball. Five for five. You say, no way. This guy was hitting like under 200 a few years ago. Do you believe the report that he went five for five? Yes. The sports reporter was not lying to you. We accept things like that based on what someone tells us, don't we? Buxton going five for five. How much more should we be convinced by divine testimony? The testimony of God, the Spirit, in the Word to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. You've heard the testimony, loved ones. What's the purpose of it? John calls you today to receive that witness, to put your faith in Jesus. Saving faith is not cold. It's not rational. It's not empty. It's also not blind trusting of something we just have no idea about. Saving faith is the warm, intellectually vital embrace of Jesus and his promises by his Spirit, trusting him in his word, no matter what our circumstances are like, no matter what our feelings are like, no, no matter what our physical state of health is like. 
Faith is the bond between Christ and his people. And John warns you in verse 10. He warns me. He warns everyone to reject this testimony about who Jesus is in the word, by the spirit, you have it, is to call God a liar. If God has spoken in his word and you, and you do not believe him, you are making God out to be a liar. It's a serious evil. If you don't believe Jesus is the son of God, you abide in death. That's what John's saying. So I want to ask you one of the most important questions you could ever be asked. You've heard John's gospel. Do you believe it? Are you saved? Are you trusting in Jesus? If you say, I'm not, as Pastor Rillebarger says, I want to encourage you to look again at what John has said. Look at the testimony. Consider God's word because, loved ones, it is true. For those who do trust Christ by faith, you have eternal life. It's not just a future reality. You have it right now. What is eternal life? Not just endless life, but a life that is lived in unending fellowship with God who is life. It's the life every human heart aches for. It's found by the Holy Spirit in union with Jesus the Son. And as Ligon Duncan says, it is not only fellowship with God, but also with all those who are in fellowship with God. It's not me alone with Jesus apart from the church, just me. It is the gathered family of God, meaning the church today is the outpost of heaven, the suburbs of glory right here, the foretaste of the fullness of eternal life. We are receiving a taste of it right now as we worship together. And I recognize the last few weeks, I'm sure you do too, what a privilege it is to worship together. How quickly that has been taken away from us. How we don't want to harden our hearts. How we don't want to go through the motions. How we don't want to just get up and roll in. and How we want to pray, God, be with us in this place. Holy Spirit, bless the word. Bless the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake of. There will be more of it. We only know now in part. We long for the day when we will know fully. Beloved, God gave us eternal life, a gift of grace, not something we earn. It is found in Jesus by faith. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we taste and see that the Lord is good. We behold, we behold your beauty in your word, and we pray today for the joy that is inexpressible and full of glory to be ours by faith in Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.